Welcome to the Altamont Enterprise Podcast. We are so excited to have a really special guest here with us today, Clarence Samuel Johnson. And the reason we met Mr. Johnson is he came to a lecture by Jason Morgan Ward, who had written the book Hanging Bridge about lynchings that had taken place in 1918 and 1942 in Jabuda, Mississippi. And Mr. Johnson's father was from Shibuda, and he had an amazing life, and Sam Johnson helped his father, John Johnson, getting residents of Shibuda out of the dangers and hardships of the Deep South to come to the Northeast. So, welcome, welcome, welcome. <laughs> Good morning. I am honored to be here. Well, we're honored to have you. And there's so much to your life and story, I don't know quite where to begin, but maybe we should begin in Albany, where you were born and raised. If you can just tell us a little about your family growing up, who your parents were, how many siblings there were in the family, just a little about your family here growing up. My family grew up here in Albany, New York. I was born in 1940. I was born on Bleecker Street, 50 Bleecker Street in Albany. It doesn't exist now. My parents' name was the Reverend John Johnson and Dorothy Mary Johnson. My dad came to Albany in 1931, and later he married Dorothy Mary Charles she became a Johnson. And from that union, there were seven children born. Five boys, two girls. Out of that seven children, six of them are still living. We are in our, my oldest brother that is living now is 80 years old. And I have one that's 79. I will be 77 and a week and a half. My baby brother, 75. My sister, 71. Oldest sister. And my baby sister is 68. Two of us live in Albany. McKinley Bernard Johnson, my oldest brother, he lives in Albany. And I live in Latham, New York, which is Albany County. We grew up in the South End. And it was, uh, we did not know too much hardship because my father worked awful hard. And my mother worked for the Department of Motor Vehicles. And their main element of talking to us was you have to get your education. My father believed in doing what was right by people, and he believed in helping people. So at this junction in my life, uh, I try to help as many as I can. The reason why we have been 
um, able to go this far and help as many people as we have is because we are centered around a God-fearing atmosphere. And it is important. My father uh, began a church in 1952, 7 Duncan Avenue. We moved from there to 193 Green Street. The church is known as St. John's Church of Garden Christ. Then we moved to 71 South Ferry Street. And my father had the first daycare, the first African-American daycare center in Albany. And also, um, from there, we went to 94 Herkimer Street. And four years ago, the Lord blessed us to be able to build a church on the corner of 4th Avenue and Green Street in Albany. My father bought that property from Wells and Gray's. It used to be a lumberyard. Mm-hmm. And he bought that property. And he wasn't able to see the new church but that was his vision, and it is standing now. My brother McKinley uh, Johnson is the pastor. I'm also an ordained elder, and I help him handle some of the service. I went to Philip Schuyler High School. I graduated from there, from Philip Schuyler High School. I went to um, Hudson Valley. My wife at that time, Helen Johnson. She found out that I could go to college for free. I was among the first EOP students that was able to attend college for free. Now, what is an EOP? Equal Opportunity Program. It was sponsored. uh, State University in Hudson Valley partnered. And when I... Finished uh, that, uh, I went to Hudson Valley, got my degree, associate degree in political science and psychology. From there, I transferred to SUNY. And I received a a, a bachelor's degree from SUNY in uh, political science and psychology. And that is my educational process. So you really took your parents' advice to heart, the idea of education. My mother, Dorothy Mary, told us, if you read a chapter a day, you will be able to become an avid reader. And anything you want to learn, it's in a book. And I began to read, and I read a lot now. And I flourished from her teachings relative to education and reading. I uh, wrote a poem in, when I was in Hudson Valley, it won first prize. The teacher asked me, could she enter it? It was about the clouds. Do you happen to remember that poem? I... No, no, I don't remember that poem. Uh, it turned into a short story. What was it about? It was about all of the clouds in the skies and the images in which the clouds represented. You could see at different times. Now, if you look in the skies, you can see different clouds that make you think of different images. 
And that's what I talk about, the cumulus nimbo clouds and the Sirius and the other clouds. And it won first prize, and they published it in 1971. Hudson Valley published I have a copy of it today. I don't have it with me, yeah. but I do have a copy of that. And it has been very exciting at that time. Yes, to be a poet is exciting, I think. And you went then into a career of government service, is that right? Oh, yes, yes. Tell when, us a little about that. When I uh, graduated at the age of 18, I got a full-time job at Hall of Drugs in Albany in June of 1958. Then I took the state exam. And I went to, I passed it, and I got hired by the Department of Motor Vehicles, 130 Ontario Street in Albany, where everybody had to go January the 31st. No, December the 31st, your registration had, be, had to be renewed by the 31st of January. Everybody lined up. So it wasn't a rotating system then. It, everybody came due at the end of the year. Oh, my Everyone goodness. Everyone <laughs> that had a license and a registration, your registration expired January 31st, and you had to have a valid license plate on your car, and everybody lined up. I bet it was a long in, line. Long, long line. Yeah. 130. Ontario Street is one block south of Central Avenue on, uh, and people would line all the way up sometimes Central Avenue. And it was bad until they placed a satellite office out in Latham, New York, in the State Bank. And they transferred me out there to help take off the load in Albany. I stayed with the Department of Motor Vehicles for eight and a half years. And then the Greyhound bus, Eastern Greyhound Lines at the time, they, the district manager saw me. I took care of all of the Greyhound bus applications in a probation uh, uh, program and policy that they had. I learned their laws. I learned the motor vehicle laws. I took care of all, whenever they came in to, uh, register new buses. They brought all the applications to me. The manager saw me, and he said, how would you like to work for Greyhound? And I discussed it with my wife. I discussed it with my father. And I went down and took the exam. I got 100 on the exam. When I was working for the Department of Motor Vehicles, my paycheck every two weeks was $72. When I passed and I made up my mind to go to Greyhound, I was hired as the first black African-American in the city of Albany to be the assistant terminal manager. And I was in charge of all the baggage and all the tickets and the traveling of the passengers. My manager took care of all the bus drivers. Mm-hmm. In his absence, I took care of the bus drivers and all the rest of the particular affairs that went along with a managerial position. From there, I worked f 
from 1966 to 1979. And then I went to Trailways, Adirondack Trailways. The headquarters now is in Kingston. I worked for them from uh, seven, from 1980 to 1987. Then I went back to the state government. And I worked for the Department of Transportation as the um, uh, agency director number one, which was, I was assistant to the director of public health and safety. And all of the Department of Transportation uh, particular activities, anything that happened as far as accidents and health, it came to our department. And I, when the ADA law came out, I had to go all over the state to make sure our buildings was ADA satisfactory. And just so listeners know, this is a compliance so that people um, with handicaps um, are able to have access. Yes, American Disability Act. Right. And it was important, and I had to make sure all that was done. Big responsibility. Yes. And you assumed responsibility at a very young age, and this is a story I would love for our listeners to hear about how you helped your father when you had just first gotten your driver's license to make these runs to Shibuta to help people come north. If you could just tell us the story of how that came about and what that was like. I used to go with my father when I was 10 years old to the Mississippi, back and forth. Of course, I wasn't familiar at that time with all of the problems, because you did what your father said mm-hmm. to do, or your parents told you what to do. You did it. You didn't ask any questions. When I became 16, I got my driver's license. My dad had a 1956 white Chevrolet, four-door sedan. He had made one trip to Shibuta, Mississippi, and he had about 11 people in that one car. And he said that that car was not heavy enough. So he went out and bought a 1955 Cadillac, blue and white, four-door sedan, from Windows Cadillac on Central Avenue. And I went with him in the month of November when I got my driver's license to assist him in driving sharecroppers from Shibuta to Albany. And on the way down, I had my first open racism experience. We stopped in Hagerstown, Maryland to get something to eat, and I went inside the restaurant through the front door, and I sat down at the counter, waiting for the waitress to come and uh, ask me what did I want. She wouldn't pay any attention to me. And one person said, we don't serve colored people inside here. You have to go around the back. And at that time, around the back was behind the restaurant, and they had an opening that they made so that if anybody of color wanted any food, you had to receive it from that window. 
My dad came in and told me to get up and go around the back. Of course, I was upset because I'm a teenager. Now I can't eat. Uh, we've been driving a long time. And I got up, went around the back, and that's where I ordered my food. And that didn't set well with me. Another experience that I had was uh, I wanted to drink water. And the water fountain, that it was very dirty. It had a sign there that said, colored drink here. My dad told me, son, you're in the South. Be careful. The people here show and tell you openly what they think about black folk. Up north, they cover it up. And that was kind of bad. But I helped my dad drive that particular Cadillac down to Mississippi. At that time, gasoline so you don't see too many SO gas stations now. Standard oil, yeah. At that time, the gasoline was only 18 cents a gallon. And my father filled that car up before we left on the corner of Arch and South Pearl Street in Albany. And I calculated each set of miles, each, do- each set of dollars that we spent. And it only took us... It, it, it was $26.12 to drive from Albany to Shibuta, Mississippi, which was close to 1,350 miles. And in that car, my father picked up 11 people in that car. But it was sturdy. It had a big trunk. The people had bags, uh, brown bag lunch. They didn't have much to bring because they didn't have much at the time. And did they know ahead that you were coming? You had written or they were aware and ready to go? Yes. My father had a way of communicating with people in the South, in Shibuta. And we always got in Shibuta by midnight. And my father never did make much noise. His signal was he would flash the headlights four times and he would blow the horn four times in front of the house where whoever was going and you knew the signal you knew about what time he was coming and you had to be ready he also had another signal uh, whistle in the country, it's dark. You don't only hear anything but crickets at night. And he had a special whistle. And if you heard that whistle, that was his other signal. It is time to go. Whoever was going was ready. They came right out, got in the car. He went on to the next house. He never got out and went to anybody's door and knocked on the door. He only gave the people five minutes or no more than 10, because you were supposed to be ready. And when he finished making his stops at the various houses, we would turn right around and come back toward Albany. We never stayed overnight when he was picking up people to come back until the later years when it got different back in the 90s because he, he stopped picking up people in the 90s. 
bringing him north. And from the time that he started to the time that he stopped, it was over 100 families. And, and he was given the Harriet Tubman Award. Yes, he for was. His, yes, his he was. Work. He was given the Harriet Tubman Award uh, for uh, being like Harriet Tubman, bringing people out of the South based on the conditions and helping them. When he would bring them out of the South, he would put them in houses. My father bought his first house from... um, Albert and Kirsch, it was a real estate company. Mr. Kirsch, Irving Kirsch, was one of my best, my father's best friends. And he supported my father in buying the houses. My father bought a total of 17 houses. Now, he would fix them up because his family tree, they were carpenters, builders, masons, they were electricians, and my father learned that. He came in 1931. He bought a lot out on Rap Road. But and just to let people it. know, that's partly in Gilderland and partly in Albany, and it's an historic community on the National Register as well as the State Register where this migration, part of the great migration from Shibuda, um, the people that settled there built their houses with their own hands, and many of them still stand today. And there are fourth-generation members of those original families, some of them still living there. So that's great. Your father had those skills himself that yes, he could fix up the house. He sold his piece of land. And came to Albany because that's where he was making his money. He was he learned how to paint and do carpentry work and electrical work. And he bought this house for $500 on 7 Dungan Avenue. And he it was a three-story building. It was burned out. He fixed it up because the reason I know, because I would help him. I would carry the two-by-fours and the plywood and the sheetrock and help him and he put one family in and then the second family in on the second and third floor and he had his church on the first floor but he purchased property and those that he brought from Mississippi he would rent the apartments out to them so that they would have a place to stay so they were uprooted from their own homes, but when they arrived here, they weren't just left to fend for themselves. They had a, a they had place to, where they could they go. They had and, a place where they could yeah. live. And he helped them by, whenever he bought a house, he would hire some of those men to help him fix them up. 58 Rensselaer Street, 189 Green Street, 193 Green Street. He had, three, he had four houses on Alexander Street. He sold, he sold a lot of the property, and with that, he never charged people anymore. He began to rent $25. He never, ever charged anybody no more than $300 an apartment. And he was buying houses back in... 
the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s. And when he got to the point he couldn't work with them houses anymore, he began to sell them. And uh, we would help him. But many of the people are living. There was one family that I helped my daddy bring back. And the family's name is the Williamson's. It was 11 of us in that car. And the father of that group of children, he's alive today. He's 100 years old. Oh, my God. They just celebrated his 100th birthday last month, and he's 100 years old. So what were those car rides like? Were people scared? Were they jubilant to be leaving? Were they Well, they were uh, sad leaving their area as far as uh, their friends and their loved ones, mm-hmm. but they were excited to come to, north, come to the north because they had heard a lot of uh, information. They had heard a lot of stories how you could get a job in the north. And many of them got jobs in the hospitals and in the restaurants. And some of them worked domestic work. But they were excited. The cars were always crowded. Mm-hmm. Always crowded. Uh, I can give you an example of he would put five adults in the back, four adults in the front. That was the driver him and two other adults, and then children on the laps. And the luggage on the top or in the trunks. And it was crowded, and you they brought their lunch in bags because they didn't have much money, and in them not having much money, they had to eat. Mm-hmm. And they ate what was given to them or prepared for them when they left home. It was different sandwiches. It was chicken. It was biscuits. And bottle. they had water in containers. And everybody shared with what they had. And we didn't go into the restaurants until we got up into Pennsylvania. And then when we got to Albany... My father would help them, and at this time, he was able to uh, sustain what he was doing because he was working hard, and he received money from the apartments, and he also used to work for the state capitol. He had a custodian job at the state capitol, and he would work there and then leave there, and then go home, work on the houses, come home, take care of his family and his wife and his family, and then go to church because he believed in going to church. That's where we get it from now. The foundation that we're standing on, the legacy that we're standing on, is a righteous uh, foundation because he believed in going to church. He always told us if you treat people right, if you do just and live right, God will help you make your way. You will have to work hard if you're going to have anything. And he taught us never spend your last dime. Never spend your last dime? Good advice. Tell me a little about, you You had said 
earlier that your father felt if he stayed in Chibuda, he he would be killed. He would be dead. How, how did how where did that fear come from? Were the hangings um, just so the listeners know there were four African Americans that were hanged in 1918, two young men and two young women, and then there were two boys that were hanged from that bridge in Shibuta in 1942. And I'm just wondering if if that was something that put fear into people and was commonly talked about in the community, or how your father came to believe that if he stayed there, he'd be killed? And also, what gave him the courage to not just leave himself, but to help others leave as well? Well, my dad, um, he, his parents, his parents' name was Sam Johnson and Mary McCarty Johnson. They had their own farm, and they had their own animals. And they had to work the farm. And the pigs and the chickens and the cows and the goats. And they had to work the farm. Uh, some of his brothers, and my dad was one of 15 children. And some of his brothers were uh, would go to the different uh, farmers that had big farms and they would work hard. They would work from sunup to sundown. And my father, and the money that you would get was nothing but 50 cents a day. I remember my personal self working on a farm in up here in the north, and I was working for 50 cents an hour. And to ma- just to imagine you were only getting 50 cents a day. So you earned in an hour what they earned in a day. day. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, very difficult. And my father had made up in his mind that he could not stay there because he was very outspoken. He was always trying to help somebody. And he couldn't, he, he saw a lot of, bad treatment toward his people, but he was recognized and respected in the what they call the country and in the town of Shibuta. His family was recognized and respected, but it was, you knew where you stood. You knew if you had to go to the dry goods store, you had to go in the back. My father's brother, his name was Gates, Bill Gates, had a store in the town of Shibuta. Now, I'm telling you this because my father told me, and I wrote this information down, that his brother had the store. His store was doing good. Sam Johnson's brother, Bill Gates, had a store, and it was doing good. He ordered him a brand-new car out of Detroit, Michigan. They shipped it by train. When it got to Shibuta, they wouldn't let him take the car off. The white folk would not let him take the car off. And my father told me that story, and he witnessed it. And he said, I can't stay here. 
He said, I can't work for a white man all my life because he was too outspoken. He didn't like to tolerate. He was all business at such a young age. He was respectful to his mother. He took care of his mother. He, as his father got older, he was taking care of his father. And he said, I can't stay here. And in 19, and the reason why he told me that he couldn't stay, he said, Sammy, if I had stayed, the character that I have and the desires that I have, I wouldn't have been able to accomplish them. In Shibuta, Mississippi, I would have been outspoken and I would have been killed because I wouldn't tolerate a lot of stuff. He never, ever tolerated a lot of junk. Good for him. Never. And that's what happened. And he came to Albany in 1931. And his reason was because it was too much racism. It was too... The work, he worked from sunup to sundown in the sawmills, out in the farms, uh, banking lettuce and cabbage and onion rolls and corn and picking cotton. And that was, for what you got, you could not make a headway because you needed certain kind of supplies. And when you went to buy the supplies, they would mark credit on a book. And at the end of time, when the harvest came along, you think you got a profit. You don't because all of the supplies was charged. And the different merchants down there, they had a way of stacking the books. And then you think you're going to get some money, and you wouldn't because of the system that they had. So I noticed when you were talking about experiencing racism as you had to go into the back door of this restaurant. You said your father told you in the North they don't show it. Does, is there a sense that there was never any equality even in the North? It was just this um, tamped down kind of racism, this idea that people didn't show it but still felt it? Is that... Uh, back in, uh, back in when I was coming up in the North, uh, people didn't come right out and just, uh, called you, uh, out of your name. They wouldn't call you unless teenagers got in a fight or something. They would yeah. degrade your name and call you the N-word. Uh, but just to walk down the street in Albany, you didn't have to step off the curb and let a white person come by. You just kept walking. They would keep walking, but they'd look back at you and look at you as though, what are you doing here? Why are you uh, looking at me like that? You would feel the uh, difference. You would feel prejudiceness. But they wouldn't verbally, they wouldn't utter it out of their mouth verbally unless it was a rare situation of some kind. And as I grew, you wouldn't see that. But then all of a sudden different, you could begin to see different aspects of racism in different places. 
and all of the progress that the African-American people have made now, based on what's happening now in 2017, and, for example, the Charlottesville thing, that's bringing back all kind of bad memories. Well, I wondered what effect that would have, because here you got your college degree, you were the first African-American assistant manager at the bus terminal, you had this important career with the state government and the Department of Transportation, there was an African-American president. (laughs) I mean, I wondered if you felt like you got to a certain point where were accepted for who you were. Well, in some places, I was. Yeah. Other places, people would look at you and wonder, well, what are you doing here? Why you got this kind of job? When I was with the state government, I left the state government, I was a grade 23, which was a nice grade. And when I would tell people that, oh, how did you get that job? as though I couldn't, I was not capable of studying or passing exams. So it was always there. It was always there. One reason I know specifically, when I went to the Department of Motor Vehicle at the age of 18, I stayed there for eight and a half years. I learned the motor vehicle law. I opened up a private service bureau after I left and they kept passing me over. It was uh, grade three when I started. Then they decided to make it a grade six. And I knew the law. They would keep coming. And new people had to be trained. They would send them to me and I would train them. But they had what they call statutory ability to put a person in a position. And they would. It was a grade 11, and they kept passing me over. I knew the law. I was training people. I knew how to solve problems, but they kept passing me over. And I told the director at that time, I said, one day you're going to throw me a party. You keep passing me over. You watch. And then when I got the offer from Greyhound in 66, I went and told them. They said, Johnson, you can't leave. We need you here. I said, well, you passed me over too many times. That must have been a wonderful moment for you. It was, but you could feel, you could see the subtleness of the dislike or not, or trying to block an African-American to move up. It got better after, but at various times you could see and feel how it is. And sometimes you can feel it today in different ways. Well, yes, you mentioned Charlottesville, and certainly it's in that case, it was no longer hidden or subdued. You know, racists marching with tiki torches and the president talking about both sides as if there's... It's not good. Uh it makes you feel, it makes you wonder what's going to happen. And of course, this is what the scripture tells us. When you see wars and rumors of wars, men against men, uh, children against parents, 
all these types of things happening. Time is winding up. We have to be careful about how we treat people, what we say, and what we do, and to just cover up. But another problem that they're not paying attention to is now when those that want to keep the African-American down or take, take back what they think they had, the millennial children, the Generation X children, children in my generation, and we have come to the point where we're not going to just let you walk over us. We're not going to just let you step in front of us without saying something to you. I was just talking to someone yesterday, and they said they were standing in line waiting for something. And this white couple jumped in front of them out of one line and jumped in front of them. And the African-American man that I was talking to, he said, do you know you jumped in front of me? What do you think you're doing? See, they're not going to tolerate what my father and his siblings had to tolerate in terms of, look, you get over there. You get up. Let me digress one uh, for a minute. When I was working for Greyhound, I sent my wife and uh, two of my children on a trip because I was fortunate. Lord bless me. And see, when you do right, God will bless you. He'll help you. He'll take care of you. And I sent them on a trip. They left Albany. They went to Cleveland. They went to Chicago. They went down to St. Louis. Now, on the trip from St. Louis going to Virginia, she had a problem. And the problem turned out to be my wife was in the third seat behind the bus driver. My two children were sitting in the seat. They went through this little town, and a white person got on the bus, and the bus driver said, you have to move to the back. And my wife said, I'm not moving to the back. My children are not moving. The man said, well, you have to give this lady a seat. She's not going to stand. My wife said, I'm not going to do it. My wife called me on the phone. I was working down at the bus station at, on Broadway. And she told me what happened. I said, baby, don't get up. Let me call the president. I called the president of the company. His name was Harry Lesko. I said, you tell them to call Mr. Lesko now. Don't move. Call Mr. Lesko. They called Mr. Lesko. They, the district manager came out. The supervisor, the bus drivers came out. And... Within a half an hour, the bus driver had the bus back in motion because Mr. Lesko said, I hired him. He's not moving. Move on. And at that time, you respected the CEO. You did what they said. You didn't challenge it. And they moved on. That was an experience that my children and my wife went through. Well, I 
salute them. <laughs> Rosa Parks in our midst. My yes. goodness. That, and what year was that? What, that, okay. that was in 19... Uh, that was in 1972. Oh, my goodness. And you wouldn't think it. No, gosh. That was in 1972. Well, so what can we do so that we don't backslide? I uh, mean, what... What I, uh, what what can I do... What can an everyday person do that... An everyday individual can recognize and talk about what happened, bring their feelings out, observe what is necessary. They See, people fail to realize that each human being on the inside is made the same relative to, to the physical body, the thinking factors. We think, we can think, we can process, we can work our minds, we can invent things, and they have to recognize the fact that what they can do is don't hide the feelings, understand that it's a difference when you be true to yourself and true to the person that you are with. There's a lot of interracial children now. There's white boys going with uh, African-American girls, vice versa. They don't tolerate that. A lot of them don't even understand what it is. When you, they don't even read about it because they don't, it, it's not in their face to, for them to recognize it because they don't want to see that kind of stuff. They know when you interact with an individual that, is not of your same culture or your same color of your skin, they know that it can gel together. And we, you have to stand up for what is right. And all the stuff that's going on in Charlottesville, everybody knows it's not right. But you got too many of them that are afraid of what's going to happen if they stand up. You have to stand up for what is right. Because if you don't, then you're going to suffer yourself. Because everyone that suppresses bad thoughts and things down the line, it comes back to bite them. And it's necessary. This is what my dad taught me. He said, God will protect you. He will look out for you if you... Look out for yourself and look out for somebody else. And don't stir up trouble. See, people stir up trouble. It's sad to say that whatever, and it goes back to history, whatever the white man got, he took it. It wasn't his. Meaning, he took the country from the Indians, brought the slaves from Africa so that they can build for them, they took different things from, they tried to break down the will of the people and everything he had and built, it was built on somebody else's back and he don't want to accept the fact 
My dad said, if you want to get the attention of the white man, hit him in his pocket. Mess with his money. He don't care if you mess with his children. He don't care if you mess with his wife or what he has. He said, but when you start messing with his money. And see, that's what happened in the big migration. In the South, many of the African Americans was moving north. It hit the white man in his pocket. Economically, he began to hurt. And he tried to stop that. What am I going to do with my farm? I can't do it. I don't know how to do this hard work. I'm not going to do this hard work. The people that did the work. And see, today, for all of us, even African-American people and people of color, we have to maintain our integrity. They took the prayer out of the school. They don't want the children to uh, read the Bible in the school. Some are trying to get it back in the school. They just want to take God out of the whole picture, and that can't happen. Because when they first came from England to Plymouth, Mass., one of the first things they did, they got on their knees, and they thanked God for being able to come to the new country. And that stayed with people. People have left the spirit of God. You got a lot of young people don't even know anything about God. Right, but they left for Plymouth because they couldn't practice the religion religion they wanted. wanted. So the new country was supposed to be a place that the government didn't have a religion so that individual people could practice the way they wanted. Wanted to. And see, in them practicing the way they wanted to, As time passed, they got away from the practice. The diligence of putting God first. And people don't put God first. I did this. I did that. They don't say, God helped me to do this. God helped me to do that. And that's what's important now. And as people in the 21st century, we have to recognize that Based on what was built and the foundation was built, every man created equally, you got to pay attention to what you're saying because now anybody with hard work and understanding and love can get what the other man is getting. Let's hope that remains to be true. Yes, it's so important. Even now, when I be walking, when I be riding in my car, I worked hard. I worked very hard, and I was able to buy a nice car. And when I ride in my car, a lot of people look at my car and look at me. What are you doing with that kind of car? And so I it's said, the same kind hard. of feeling that goes back to your father's, father's brother. Day. What are you doing with that kind of car? Wow! And they still do it. Gosh. They still do it as of 2017 in August. They still do it. I was riding in my car the other day, and somebody, whoa, where'd you get that kind of car? When I first got the car, and it's a nice car. What what kind of car is it? Uh, it's a Mercedes-Benz. 
Oh, well, that is a, a nice car. It's a, a E350 when I first got it. And let me add this to uh, what you're talking about myself. After I retired from the state government in 1999, I stayed home. And then I applied for a position at the Albany School District. And I, re- I was able to get it. And when I got it, uh, I had to become certified. And presently, August the 31st, 2017, I got to go back to work at the Albany High School. I'm a certified teacher's assistant. I have substituted, but now I'm on a one-on-one with special ed child. And I'm going back. When I first bought that car three years ago, I was going down Washington Avenue, and man pulled over. The police pulled me over, and he looked. He said, where'd you get this car? I felt funny, but I was taught. You be careful how you talk to the police. And I told him where I got it. What are you doing with it? I said, sir, I work hard. I'm on my way to school. I showed him my credentials. He said, well, what are you going to tell? You were speeding. No, I wasn't speeding. You were speeding. What are you going to tell the kids in school? That their teacher was speeding, broke the law. I said, well, I'm going to tell him you have no business breaking the law. He gave me a ticket. But I know what he wanted to do. What is this black man doing driving this car? So he was trying to put you down. He put was me down. To... I went, I got out of the ticket because I told the judge what was going on and I explained it to him. I explained what I do and how I help different uh, children, and I do that now. And he didn't let me, he, he didn't charge me. He didn't give me uh, all of the full speeding processes. They changed whatever they had to do. But the point is, why stop me for no reason? Just to find out what am I doing. They call it driving well black, guy. yeah. <laughs> Driving well yeah, black. and that's that's a bad thing, but it's it's difficult. But I feel that we have come a long ways. We got a long ways to go. Uh, don't it, as far as people of color, you have to stand up for your rights, and you got to make sure you're right. And people that are not people of color have to accept this. I do not believe we're going back to where we were. I, I, I can't see that. I can't phantom that in my mind. I don't even let myself think like that. Because it's necessary to do what's right. Let God direct your path. Ask him to give you strength. And treat people right. That's the key. If you're not being treated right, say something about it. And if you know as an individual, see, because it... It's we the people. Going back to the words of the That's Constitution. That's what it is. It's we the people. If each individual examined themselves and see if 
if I'm treating you right, if I'm treating you with respect, because if I treat you with respect, you will treat me with respect. Or if you don't, then that's your problem. I'm not going to waste time. Uh, my dad taught me. You are not responsible for what other people do. You're responsible for what you do. And if you do what's right, if you treat people right, if you live right, then God will make a way for you somehow. And you will recognize the fact. And as individuals, each one of us, have to examine ourselves. Am I doing the right thing by that person? Well, that is great advice to end our podcast on. I hope Donald Trump hears it. (laughs) So do I. (laughs) Thank you so much. I appreciate your kindness for allowing me to say what I said and to express what I feel. I have on the front of my portfolio here, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And that's found in Jeremiah, the 29th chapter, in the 11th verse. And that applies to everybody. God knows what plans are for you. And he's going to help you accomplish your plans if you pay attention to what you're doing. And I say to everybody, pay attention to what you're doing. If you change your thoughts, you will change your life. And think positive. My email is it will get better two with the digit two on the end at Yahoo. And it's going to get better. And I'm on Facebook every day under Sammy Johnson. I put a scripture. I put words of encouragement. What I'm putting on there now are money tips from an author, Sharkeith. I'm not taking credit for any of the things relative to the money tips I read the book and I'm just sharing what that lady said in the book and if you want to know more about it you can email me it will get better too (laughs) thank you so much